Welcome to Dad Talk Today. The podcast for dads facing some of the toughest moments of their lives. We are here to walk with men through divorce, keep them connected to their kids, help them understand their rights, and work for change in family law courts. Moms, you are always welcome too. We are all about advocating for shared parenting and doing what is best for our kids. Let's get started. Here is your host, Eric Carroll. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dad Talk Today. I am your host, Eric Carroll, joined by Melissa Isaac and Jeff Morgan. Tonight, we have a very special guest. He's a jack of all trades, MMA champion. Uh, I think he was in the military, in the spec ops, and he is the founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation. He works with veterans and PTSD, Mr. Chad Robichaud. Chad, how you doing, my man? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I could do a whole episode just on your MMA career, but I, I want to pick at you a little bit about that. Could you tell me a little bit about your MMA career? Well, I, I never like sought after going into MMA, but um, I uh, started martial arts at five years old. So uh, it's, it's, it's a lifelong thing for me. And doing it, competing in MMA was really just a natural progression of competing. And I started off competing in judo and traditional jiu-jitsu, wrestling, those types of things. So my whole life I was a competitor. And as I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is the, the primary martial art I do now, and I'm a third-degree black belt under Carlson Gracie Jr., um, I uh, – I just uh, that was the best way during that time when I first started training in jiu jitsu to compete was in uh, these uh, back then it was called no holds board. And when I say back then, it was like the late 90s, they were called no holds board fights. And uh, so I started f- competing and using my jiu jitsu to win those fights. I did five amateur fights, uh, won them all, and then I turned professional and you know, ended up being 18 and 2 as a professional. I won a w- world championship and uh, my highest rank, I was ranked number six in the world. Um, so, wow. And, yeah, so that was uh that was my uh, time doing that, and I don't fight MMA anymore because I'm too busy now, and I'm probably maybe too old. I don't think I am when I'm training, but but uh, but I'm 44. So uh, no, I uh, I still train the jujitsu almost every day. So I'm still out there in the mat. I'm still out there in the match, grappling and wrestling and and doing jujitsu, and I probably will um, even compete, continue to compete in jujitsu, just because it's it's healthy for me to do two or three competitions a year. It keeps me put a date on the calendar to compete. It gets me focused and disciplined about to eat right, train hard, and uh, just stay stay disciplined. So I enjoy competing. That's so awesome, my man. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about here on the podcast is what people go through in marriage and divorce, court, parental alienation. And I'm really interested in your foundation, the Mighty Oaks Foundation, dealing with our veterans. Uh, we have many of our veterans that are coming to us every single day. They're fighting a war overseas, and then they come back here and they're fighting a war just as hard. Uh, could you tell everybody a little bit about your um, organization? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, is the, the war at home is, is a big war. It's a very real, real war that people, a lot of people don't know about. The veteran suicide rate is over 20 a day. You hear the number 22 thrown around a lot. The most recent VA report says uh, over 20 a day, which that only reports about 50% of the demographic. So we don't really even know what the number is. Uh, but one would be too many, uh, and 20 certainly is too many. And uh, and then on the family side, you have a divorce rates in some different bases, and some bases as high as 80% in the combat veterans. And uh, and then the, the PTSD diagnostics, uh, diagnosing veterans PTSD is over 30%. And so with a lot of problems in our military community, no surprise, we've been at war for over 20 years. And uh, and with, with uh, the Obama administration had downsized the military, which put a lot of strain 
on the military to uh, to do uh, back-to-back consecutive deployments. You know, people like me did eight deployments. A lot of people think that's a lot, but I know people that have done like 20 deployments. Uh, so, I mean, it's right. just a lot of strain on the military community. And uh, and so there has to be a solution out there. And uh, Mighty Oaks brings is one of those organizations that brings a solution to those problems. We do faith-based, faith-based peer-to-peer mentoring. So we're non-clinical. Uh, we have we have a resili- resiliency conferences on base where I, I've spoken over 150,000 active duty troops by invitation of commands, go around the world and speak to these warriors and help them, give them the uh, tools and the resiliency, uh, the resiliency uh, to actually prepare to be combat ready warriors. And then when they come back to be resilient to the hardships they may face. So do a lot on the resiliency side. On the recovery side, we have our legacy program, which we've had 4,000 graduates from. And that's where we bring them in for six days and do that peer to peer faith-based mentorship um, and really just take them in depth to whatever they're, they're struggling with and help them recalibrate their lives to the lives that we believe they're created to live. We do that at four different ranches around the country, Texas, Virginia, Ohio, and California. And we have them for those six days. We do that about 30 times a year. And we pay for everything, whether they're active duty from the veteran community, spouses. Uh, we have a program for spouses. And we uh, also have started doing it for first responders as well. And when I say we pay for everything, we even cover the travel, uh, their flights to get to the program. So very, very blessed because of a grateful nation that supports us financially through donations. Blessed that we're able to do that for them. So that's awesome. You're saying that active duty or veterans that your your um, the Mighty Oaks Foundation reaches out to both. They serve both. Yeah, on the resiliency side, you know, those that are going to active duty troops on bases and speaking. Uh, for example, I go to Marine Corps boot camp every quarter. The the Marine Corps has I'm one of only two speakers the Marine Corps allows to go speak to the recruits at boot camp. I've done that for five years every quarter. I've spoken to over fifty thousand of them, and uh, not only speak to them but I give them a, a book called Path to Resiliency, which is the pillars of resiliency are, you know, mental, physical, spiritual, and social. Oftentimes, that spiritual pillar gets overlooked. So, I've written a book called Path to Resiliency. It's about spiritual resiliency, and the Marine Corps actually lets us give that to them. And, uh, and, and you know, speaking about five, three to five thousand of them at a time. And in fact, I was just there this week when I was in California speaking with General Heritage, who's the commanding general of the base. And despite the restrictions with COVID, they're going to invite me back to continue that because they value it so much, the, the resiliency training we do. And then on the recovery programs, the legacy programs, we have veterans come from the veteran community, but we also have uh, all four branches that have sent, uh, that send all warriors to us on active duty orders. So they come in official military orders to us. And, um, and we, uh, we've been doing that for about eight years now, uh, 10 years of our program, but eight years of it, we've had active duty coming in orders to us, all four branches, their PTAD orders, the military doesn't pay for it. They just let them, let them go uh, to the program. And uh, I'm real happy again, that all four, four branches have done that. Uh, we still have yet to get the Coast Guard to do it, but I know they want to. And Space Force is brand new. So mm-hmm. we'll they send them over to, <laughs> to us from Space Force. That sounds funny to say, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. Well, that's such a needed service. If, if I might talk about that just for one more second, is you know a lot of my clients are active duty, and the command really doesn't know how to react when you have a divorce situation or you have allegations coming from a spouse or just internal strife within the marriage. So a lot of times, what they do is they issue the, they'll they'll tell the service member to leave, and they issue these no contact orders that put even further strain on the relationship where the soldier can't even speak to his kids or whatnot. So do, so. Let me ask you your experience in the military. How do you think the command is responding to these family issues? And do you think it's helping or do you think it's hurting? 
Yeah, I mean, of course, every command is different. Um, it, it's been it's been our experience that we see we see commands that send people to Mighty Oaks, uh, not because it's a faith based program. They believe what we do. They just seen as it has worked on people with people. So if they see someone struggling and going through a divorce, we get a lot of commands that maybe the guy didn't have PTSD or maybe he's not diagnosed with it or whatever the situation when they're going through uh, marriage crises, Mighty Oaks comes up a lot in the commands, individual commands send them to us. I think systemically across the military, the military has not handled uh, marriage and family well. Did I have not made it a priority? Uh, and, you know, I come from the Marine Corps where the Marine Corps is always the Marine Corps first, everything else second, mission first. However, I believe for those who are married to be combat ready, resilient warriors, you have to have a stable home front. And if you can't fix that, if you can't make sure that your 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 warriors have healthy marriages and, and solid home life, then they're not going to be the most effective combat ready warriors. They're not going to be able to deploy without you know, issues that are going to come up and arise that the command's going to have to deal with. So I think any any good leader, uh, wise commander would would uh, pay attention to their troops' family life and make sure that they give them every resource they need to make sure they have healthy healthy families and strong marriages. So, Chad, um, listening to what you're saying and reading your book, Marriage Advance, uh, you are not unfamiliar with some of these things that you're talking about, which has probably helped to give you the insight and helped you to be more effective with them. But can you tell, tell us a little bit about your own experience? Because here you were, you've been deployed, I think it was eight times to Afghanistan. You said eight consecutive deployments, and then you got pulled. And how did that affect you internally and, and what all happened? I mean, there must have been dynamics when you came back home that were unexplainable and probably caused a lot of tensions. And and uh, so, I mean, what is your experience with it? Um, just I'll let you speak. Yeah, well, we talk about, you know, I talk a lot about resiliency and readiness, uh, both on and off the battlefield. I would never, you know, leave for an operation and not be trained in every every aspect of the operation, have contingency plans for things that are going to go wrong and try to just think of anything any, anything with an operation that had to be prepared for. I mean, that's in special operations. We do that. We game plan everything. We think everything that we're good at, let's be good, really good at it. Everything we're bad at, let's fix those deficiencies. What's going to go wrong? What could go wrong? Let's have immediate action drills and contingencies for those things. Um, but we don't do that in our personal life very well. And so when I got married, uh, me and Kathy met when we were 17, 18 years old. We got married a year later at, night, at, at 18 and 19 years old. We both came from very broken homes, both right. uh, from divorced homes, and we never put those strategies in place in our marriage to be prepared for when those hardships would come. We didn't have the immediate action drills. We didn't have the contingencies. In fact, you know, the example for me, where I can, I grew up in Southern Louisiana, very dysfunctional family. My father was a Marine. Uh, he was a combat veteran in Vietnam. Extreme PTSD, alcoholism, women, and drugs in his life, and so you know, I've seen him get divorced twice. Uh, I've seen a lot of physical abuse. I was physical abused myself by, by my father. So I just seen dysfunction the whole time. That was the model for me. And, and actually going into marriage, I, I, it's kind of sad to say this, but going into marriage, I never looked at a marriage as a permanent thing. Uh, it is a permanent thing. It's a it's a lifelong covenant between uh, you, know, you and your wife and, and God. But I never looked at it that way in my, in my younger years. It's just like, that's something you do. You, you like someone, you get married. And then when it gets hard, you know, you move on. That's just, that was what I was shown and taught. I mean, that was what my wife was, was shown and taught uh, and her mother who had been divorced several times and her father as well. So uh, that's what we went into. And, and, you know, everything's obviously great when you're 
18 and 19 years old and you're in love or lust with each other <laughs> and, you're just, and you have that, uh, that initial excitement. But, you know, we chose, we signed up. I say we signed up. I mean, I was already going through training to become a reconnaissance Marine. That's when about the time my wife and I met, but she chose, she signed up to be my wife, knowing what it was, what it meant to be in special operations, knowing what it meant to be a recon Marine and uh, knowing that one day I would probably have to do that job. Unfortunately, it would, for me, I say unfortunately for me, because I want to do that job right away, but I would have to wait 10 years uh, until 9-11 happened to actually get to, to deploy. And uh, when I did deploy in eight times, uh, all the things that came with us, you know, finally, it really tested our marriage in a way that it we never were prepared for. Uh, right. It began with like, you know, I went to Afghanistan and, and I, we talk about the pillars of resiliency, like the mind, body, spirit, social, like I was mentally tough. I was physically tough. I knew my job very well. I was prepared physically to do my job. Like socially, I was with, I was, at, I was part of a JSOC task force, my special operations command task force, which means I was, I was assigned to one of the top tier one special operations units. I was, I was, I worked with the very best special operations people I could work with, not a higher level that I could have worked with. So I was surrounded by the right people. Uh, in that spiritual pillar, I would have said it was, uh, I had to check in the box too, because I had the word Christian stamped on my dog tag. But uh, I really didn't understand what that meant to what being spiritually resilient meant. In fact, I would, at that time I was going to church uh, with my family, but I'd always, we'd always went to church, but really uh, I wasn't engaged in church or relationship with God. I like, check the box of going to church and, and probably I look back now and knowing what I know about my faith now at that time I was probably very manipulative and controlling my family like my wife's gonna go to church and she's gonna be like loyal and faithful and all the things I wanted of a Christian woman and my kids would go to Sunday school and they could get disciplined and then I got I might have to beat them so much like all the things that I wanted out of it but I wasn't gonna take it any further than going to church and I, would, I didn't go into church softball team let's just say that like I was that's not wasn't who I was and in fact I, I believe that like Christianity and faith uh, was kind of like in men, I felt I've seen it as like a weak thing. And uh, and so I just never engaged in that personal relationship. So when I was in Afghanistan, I felt like I had to choose between between being a person of faith and being a warrior. And of course, I'm going to choose being a warrior. And, uh, and, and uh, the job I did and the things I experienced, it, it really took a toll on me very quickly. I think um, that experience of... Um, being exposed to the atrocities you see in a place like Afghanistan, the things that happen, the oppression of the people, the the sexual molestation of children, the the killing of uh, of innocent civilians there, those kind of things. Without God in my heart, it left a giant hole inside of me that I fill with you know hate and rage and anger and, and bitterness. All those uh, all those uh, things just kind of overtook me and brought my darkness over me, and. Um, I didn't handle it the right way. The way I handled it was just being a very intense, very frustrated individual. And you, that kind of works well in combat, to be honest with you, like being intense and being frustrated and just being real focused. But it doesn't work so well when you come home and you have to be a husband and father. And so I came home as being being a, you know, being a husband and being a father and tried to flip that switch and turn that intensity and frustration and anger off. And, and it just wasn't something I could do. And, and my, uh, my home was not a happy and safe place for my wife and children. I was... I would throw temper tantrums. I'd punch things and break things and slam doors and yell at my, my wife and children like I was a Marine Corps drill instructor. And it just wasn't a, a, a good environment. And, and uh, over time, that that uh, that anger and frustration started to manifest in these physiological symptoms. And uh, and it started to get much worse. I, I can tell you one time, like, 
I remember coming home from Afghanistan and my daughter was so excited for, you probably read this in the book. I think I wrote this in that book. My, my daughter was like having a birthday party and she was so excited that I was going to be there for a birthday party. And she's very opinionated. She still is, especially now she's 21. So <laughs> at this time she was like so opinionated and she had to express that she didn't like her icing on a cake and uh, something so simple. And I like flipped out and grabbed my a handful of my little girl's birthday cake and threw her cake against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday. I remember like when I, when I did that, like, you're in the middle of do, you do like something wrong and you know you're out of control. But once that momentum starts going, if you yeah. stop, then you're kind of like admitting you're wrong. So you kind of just justify your behavior. But I, I, that was like that in many incidents like that just let me know that like, I was out of control. And, uh, and my reaction was instead of to fix the behavior, my reaction was to isolate and distance myself and my family. And just deploy as much as I could, stay as busy as I could when I was home. I was going to schools and training. And like I said, that anger started to manifest these physiological symptoms. My arms would start to go numb. My face would go numb. I feel like my throat was swelling shut. I, I couldn't breathe. Like if I had like a thousand pound weight on my chest, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I know now these were early signs of panic attacks and eventually these panic attacks started to manifest. It got to the point to where um, I knew I needed to speak out and say something, but I also knew if I said something, the guys on my team, the guys I worked with would think I was weak. And, uh, and, and I'd be isolated from my group. I'd be read out of my program and not be able to do my job anymore. So I tried to push it down and keep it to myself as long as I could. But, uh, but the symptoms only got worse. In fact, I, I uh, had what's called, I know now because I've studied a lot about this now, what's called disassociation to where I would almost live like this, in bird, this bird's eye view of myself. Like I would almost see myself like a third person, you know, especially during real stressful times of, of uh, um, operations and then i would have like these moments where i wake up out of a fog and like was, i was waking up out of a dream and i couldn't remember certain things so i was definitely in a, in a pretty intense state of a uh, of a uh, heightened sense of panic and in the uh, in high levels of stress and uh we had a moment to where uh, in, in my deployment we had a, a bunch of team members killed there were, uh, like 10 team members that were that were killed and uh there were, there were a group of 12 afghans that worked for me and 10, 10, 10 of them were killed and uh, you, you may, you know, that Afghans, you may think that's not a big deal as U.S. service members. But these are guys that I worked with for three years. I lived in their homes. I played soccer with their kids. ate dinner with their families. Like, there was, uh, these were my brothers. I would have died for them and they would have died for me. In fact, they put their lives on the line for me many, many times. And, uh, and they were, so I, that, if, I, if, there was, if I was hanging on by a thread, that thread broke when that happened. And, but yet I kept, kept operating anyway. And uh, there was my last operation. I remember I was. I was like two weeks out. I was with the local nationals only. I wasn't with any of the U.S. service members. And, and at the end of that two weeks, I kind of woke up pretty much like out of a fog and, and realized that I didn't, wasn't only making decisions that were putting myself in danger, but I was putting other people in danger as well. And uh, that was what I needed. Um, that realization is what I needed to actually speak up and say I'm having problems. I was brought home and uh, I was put before a clinical psychologist and diagnosed for the first time with a severe chronic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I was I was in bad shape. Like the level of stress that I was under, it's very hard to describe because I hear, I hear people like misuse panic attacks all the time. They're like, oh, I, was, I had a panic attack in traffic the other day. And uh, you know, maybe they had a bad time in traffic, but it's not the same. Like when I, when I explain the level of panic attacks like I would have, and it's like if you were handcuffed to the bottom of a pool, and you can see the air, like how desperate you're drowning. Like how desperate would you be to get one breath of air? Like you would just be in complete panic to get one breath of air, but you never, you never die. You're constantly drowning like 24 seven. And so it becomes so, so desperate that you actually want to die 
to make that overwhelming fear of dying go away. Like the overwhelming, because you feel like your body's just shutting down and you're just, and you're not, your body's not working anymore. And uh, I mean, I've heard other veterans describe like if they're like the, you look at the Twin Towers and guys jump, people jumping out of the window. Those people didn't want to die when they jumped out those windows. But the heat was so hot, the flames were so hot, they just, they had to get away. Like you feel that way when you're in those panic moments of panic attack, like you're on the roof of a building and the building's burning. And the only way, the only way to escape is to jump. That's kind of how you feel like in these moments of panic. And that's where I was like 24 seven. And the medicine they tried to give me actually made me feel worse. They made me feel, uh, they made me feel like I wanted to die. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't suicidal at that moment, but I get these like suicide thoughts. And so I'm like, it would, you know, I was scared of myself and I actually desired to die. Um, and uh, it was, and, and on top of all that, I was completely ashamed. I felt like I totally failed. I've worked my whole life to get to that job. You know, I came from like the worst childhood. Like I, I was zero chance of me ever making special operations. I didn't even have a high school diploma when I went in the Marine Corps. Uh, Marine Corps let me in because I was living on my own and the recruiter felt sorry for me and wanted to help me out. And, Marine Corps gave me this brand new platform in life. I made it a special operations. I got an MBA. I came I can barely spell MBA, but I got one. <laughs> so, so uh, but I, I'm just, I mean, the Marine Corps really gave me, and I made it, I made it all the way up to the, you know, recon and then force recon and then JSOC. Like I made it all the way that, that pinnacle point of getting operating that way. And then in one moment it was all gone. Like, and I felt totally like a, like I failed. I failed my teammates. I failed our country. I failed the mission that I was given and I was completely ashamed. So I'm dealing with panic, shame, guilt, and, and, I'm, and I feel like I have no purpose at all anymore. And I was really lost in a really dark place. And that's when my wife and my counselor talked me back at Eric into, into getting on his mats and doing jiu-jitsu because it was something I did my whole life. And they thought it would be healthy for me. And I, and I did. And I, I honestly, I felt like I found a cure. But uh, yeah. say something. Yeah, man. I was just curious. You said you got married at a very early age from what I was here. I was 18. I just turned 18 when I very first got married. If you had it to do over again, I mean, I know, you know, you smooth things out later on, but do you think you was ready to get married at that age? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, I don't regret it because, you know, right. it's been 25 years, celebrating 25 years next week. And, right. And, uh, and then congratulations, congratulations. Yes. And we have three amazing kids. And, uh, so I obviously I don't say that I wasn't ready for, out of regret because I don't regret it, but, uh, no way we're ready. Um, yeah. we're, we're equipped to be successful in marriage. And, and because of that, you know, both my wife and I, uh, there's been some very painful years uh, because of that. Yeah. Chad, I want to go back to the, the PTSD. I know I've spoken with so numerous men who, were deployed in a war zone, um, got PTSD, came home to a very unsupportive environment. In fact, in, in litigation, we have recordings of men who are, have PTSD and the women are just screaming at them, yelling at them in their face, baiting them, pushing them. And the amount of self-restraint that they showed, you know, even suffering with the PTSD was, was amazing. So in the men that you, you work with through the Mighty Oaks Foundation, how supportive is, is or how, I guess the question is, how important is family support? When these guys are coming back with PTSD, they come home to an unsupported environment. What are their odds of success or odds of getting through it and, and getting healed, you know, versus coming home to a complete disaster? Sometimes they come home to an empty house or a cheating spouse or whatever the case is. So 
you know, based upon your experience and your interactions with these guys, you know, what's the difference in healing in as far as how fast they can heal depending on family support? I don't, I don't know that you can't, I think it's very difficult to, to, to heal uh, from something as, as at least I can speak to my experience with PTSD, the depth of PTSD that I had, it's very difficult to, to be in a, to heal when you're in a dysfunctional uh, relationship, particularly with your spouse. Uh, Kathy, I mean, you know, she's okay with me speaking about this, but she was not very supportive. And it wasn't that I think she was malicious or didn't want to be, I think she didn't understand. Uh, there was no training, no education. The word, we didn't know what the words PTSD meant. Mm -hmm. uh, she just was like, you're being a jerk and I'm going to, and you're attacked. You're being, uh, you're not being the husband who I desire. So I'm going to, and she was, you know, she could be like anybody else. <laughs> she, I, mean, I talk about all the things that I did, but she could be, you know, a tyrant too. And, uh, and so there was a lot of times she was screaming at me and provoking me and pushing me and I'm trying to hold it together. And, uh, and it was some very ugly fights and uh and i i'm surprised you know it, it never got violent with uh with the state i was in and the way she would push me and mm -hmm. uh I, I you know i and i resented her for it uh, mm -hmm. i resented her for it for a very long time i felt like i was struggling the one person that should be able to be there to have empathy for me and compassion for me to be able to have patience for my frustration the anger the anxiety them under and the one person that should be able to do that should be my spouse and she wasn't doing that for me and i and i I resented her for it. It was times I would say I had a hatred towards towards my own wife over it. I look back now and I and I and I actually uh, don't resent it anymore because I know she just at that time she just had no idea, um, and she just you know it was just she was frustrated too. And uh, and and so who I really blame it on because anytime you're frustrated about something or you're mad about something, uh, like we see in the world right now, there's some there's some just anger right now. It's just being directed at the wrong people. Uh, and, and that, that was in our relationship. There was just anger in both of us, but we were just directed at the wrong places. I mean, we should have, um, we should have went out and gotten educate, educated ourselves. We should have, but I look at the military and, and back then the military did not do a good job of talking about PTSD, of briefing the individuals, hey, some of you may struggle with this. And when you do, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to talk about it. You shouldn't be scared of getting help. Like you're not going to lose your job if you're not going to get help. In fact, the actual people were losing their jobs when they asked for help. And there's still some of that right now. But uh, but even take it further and, and sit down with spouses, the froze, the family readiness officers of those units, and they'll sit down with spouses and saying, hey, your husband's deploying. He's going to go to combat. He's going to do hard things. And sometimes he's going to act like he's going to act like a jerk. And you maybe have to show him a little more compassion, a little a little bit more empathy. And understanding or you know i said to your husband some i mean we have a lot of male spouses too but um i mean i think spouses just need to be trained equipped and understand what, what someone's going to face when they go in combat and how they're going to react and understand it's okay and this is how you need to behave in response yeah in my experience with family court uh, if there's ptsd involved first of all it's usually always used against that service member regardless of the PTSD interferes with their functioning or their ability to be a parent. You know, not everybody who deploys has PTSD, and that's one argument I make to the court is the, the, you know, the spouse will say, well, they have PTSD, so therefore they need supervised visitation. So talk about that from your perspective, because you've worked with several service members and veterans with PTSD. Are they, is it automatically, are they automatically a danger to be around their children? No. Uh I mean, just because someone's diagnosed with PTSD does not mean they're that they're dangerous or violent. In fact, I would say, oftentimes it's the opposite. Uh, 
um, I, I, I behaved, and I can see a lot of other veterans that have had extreme combat experience can behave a, a, like can have erratic behavior. They can be angry. They can be, but usually that's they do those things once once they're pushed. What the normal behavior is is um, is isolation, being recluse, being really quiet, keeping yourself, wanting to be left alone, and so you know, kind of like a sleeping bear that you go and poke it, then it, then it gets, then it gets, then it, then you're going to hear from it. But uh, for the most part, veterans uh, who are struggling are really, uh, who are struggling with like severe PTSD are really kind of keeping themselves and, and, and they really need that family support. They need, I mean, there's nothing I, I love more than when I'm struggling that way, then, you know, I'm nervous my kids to come over and put their arms around me and, and, uh, and, and, and lay on dad's lap and, and hug me and love me. Like I wanted that, that, that emotional support. Mm-hmm. Now they're older, so now it's my puppies. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think it's the opposite. Of- I agree. I agree. And we know that about 22 uh, veterans a day are committing suicide. Based upon your experience with the veterans, how many do you think are having issues in family court or issues with having access to their children? Yeah, I, I don't know the exact numbers on that, but I could say just from my experience uh, after mm-hmm. doing Mighty Oaks and seeing the personal, like, uh, we get we contact a lot when there's a veteran suicide or, or active use suicide. And, uh, you know, one of the first things you hear is, oh, my gosh, like, like no one saw it coming. That's the first thing they always say, no one saw it coming. And then after like two or three days of talking to people, it's like the signs were everywhere. And oftentimes, I mean, I can tell you like four people that I've dealt with in the last two weeks that are going through divorces and, they, and, um, and they're contemplating, they're having suicide ideations, contemplating suicide. Uh, they're, look, they're looking at losing everything through you know their careers, their their careers uh, being financially ruined uh, by their by their spouses through divorce, being right or wrong, it doesn't matter when you're talking about the, this topic of suicide, and uh, and and having their kids taken away, and uh, so yeah, I could three maybe four this week, and I don't and I'm not in the programs office. I don't of our our, our organization is pretty big, so I don't deal with applications of programs. So a lot of times people reach out to me and ask, hey, can you get me in touch with the programs people? So I'm just like handing it off. So I don't know how many we, we're dealing with those organizations, but um, like I said, I think three, maybe four this week that, and all, every, all, all of them were related to that. I mean, obviously they're dealing with combat issues and, and PTSD, but the tipping point that seems to push it over is family. I mean, that was my story, right? I came home and, uh, and dealing, with, dealing with this and uh, I, I jumped into martial arts, but things kept spiraling out of control. Despite the success in martial arts, uh, I never got better. And I found myself divorcing my family, uh, separated from my wife and kids, and in a closet with a pistol in my hand. And, and, and what led me to being in a closet with a pistol in my hand and, and wanting to take my life was not because I wanted to end my pain. It was because I realized that, I, I'm, okay, now I, I did so much damage that my wife doesn't want to be with me anymore. She filed for divorce. We sold our home. We're in two separate apartments. We just signed 12-month leases. Like, my marriage is over. My family's over. Somebody else is going to be a, a stepdad to my kids. Um, it's just ugly, and I and I'm responsible. I came to this conclusion: I was responsible. I was the problem, and the only way to solve that problem and eliminate their pain, not mine, their pain, was to uh, take my life. I, I had this thought that they're going to be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And uh, and that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 20 plus veterans every single day. That somehow my family. My kids, my wife, my friends are going to be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And it's a lie that we believe, and we make this very permanent decision to this temporary problem to try to solve it. 
And, uh, and it's, it's a complete tragedy that we believe that, but, but that was the lie I believed. And I would sit in my closet, I had my pistol and put my family pictures out and I try to build up the courage to pull that trigger. And, uh, um, but the one thing that would stop me is every time I put that gun to my head, I, I would think about who would find me. Um, you know, somebody's always going to find you, especially you after a few days, you just start smelling, right? Somebody's going to find you. And uh, the only other person that had a key to my apartment was my son, Hunter. He's a Marine now. And uh, and I thought, man, I don't want my kids to either let someone in and find me or find me himself. And and so that would give me enough to like pump the brakes. But the next day I was back at it, trying to build myself up to do it again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back <laughs> Chad, do you still deal with the panic attacks? You know, I, I spent, so this was about uh, 11 years ago that I actually had finally got past this. And, uh, and there are still times, despite the fact that I run this foundation, that I've been able to serve over 100,000 people, that I've been through all my own things, that there are times that I still struggle with anxiety, uh, my own depression. And, uh, and, and uh, last year, I actually had panic attacks again for the first time in about about it had been about five or six years that I hadn't had any panic attacks. But my son was in Afghanistan. He was involved in combat. People were telling me because they were proud of him. They're third generation Marine. I know a lot. A lot of people know me in the Marine Corps. So they were like bragging to me about some of the stuff he was doing. And he's like in, engaged in combat. There was a week that he was involved in several uh, incidents. And uh, you know, I was proud of him and happy he was there and happy he was getting that experience. He wanted to go serve his country. But the dad in me was like. My son's in Afghanistan. I've been there eight times. There's no reason he should be there. Uh, and this is going on too long. And and, uh, and it was very, very difficult for me. And uh, and I'm just thankful that all the things that I teach at Mighty Oaks for people to deal with panic, stress, anxiety, all these things that we teach, I was able to have the right people around me to do what I teach other people to do. And I did exactly what we teach people to do every day to pull me through that and uh, keep me on track. And so I, th I thought, you know, it's not something at first, like leading an organization like this, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm ashamed. Like, I'm not qualified to do it anymore. And then I realized, you know, I'm just, I, we're, this is things that I experienced and I'm going to deal with the rest of my life. But this the way we handle them moving forward that uh, it's a difference. And uh, the way I handled it was a lot different than I handled it before in the past. Right. Because that it, quick, it quickly got me through what I need to get through. And you recognize what's happening now versus back in the day. I have, I, well, I haven't had them in a while. Just like you, I had extreme panic attacks. That is probably one of the worst feelings on the face of this earth. I mean, I used to go lock myself in a room. I didn't want to be around nobody. I didn't want them looking at me. It means it really is bad. And I was, I was curious if you still have those. Cause once I got my life together, I started kind of separating myself. I'll have them every once in a while. Yeah, and I can kind of tell when they're coming and, and know how to work myself through them now. And so, yeah, and, and I know the things that I should and shouldn't do in my life that, that could bring anxiety in my life and lead to that. I'm sure that the MMA had a lot to do with calming that down too as well, right? It does, but uh, I mean, when I when I have panic attacks, I feel like my I'm going to have a heart attack. Uh, my blood pressure actually shoots up to – the last time I went to the emergency room over it, my blood pressure shot up to 200 over 130, which is not safe. So, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm terrified to get, I mean, that's stroke level. So I'm terrified. And, and I have a very healthy, I'm very athletic. Uh, I work out very hard. So I have a 
very healthy heart. I've had checked out and I have a very healthy heart with cardiovascular system. So my blood pressure gets that high means my body's under extreme stress and I probably shouldn't be out doing anything physical to calm it down. So panic attacks, no, but anxiety and depression, absolutely training. Uh, I mean, like I said, I think, I think jujitsu is great. Uh, I love doing jujitsu. Uh, I still do it all the time. And when I get stressed out, like I go to the gym and I find like some 20 year old stud and I choke him out. Like it makes me feel better. You know? but, so I, I love and as, but as much as I do, it's not the solution to my life's problems. Uh, right. You know, the solution to my life's problems was when I came to the realization that I couldn't do it by myself. I met a mentor. He said, uh, you know, he, and he walked me through, walked me into a relationship with Christ. And I made a decision to give my life, surrender my life to Christ and to calibrate my life to the life he created me to live. And that meant making decisions uh, in my everyday life of how I would respond to the things that happened to me. I didn't end up in that closet with a pistol in my hand because of what happened to me, because of my childhood, because of my marriage, because of losing buddies in Afghanistan or the things I experienced today. I didn't end up at the point to want to take my life because of those things. I ended up there because of the way I responded to those things. Mm -hmm. I never lost the ability to, to respond the way I choose to respond to life. Um, I had just had given it up and, and before. So I, I once I stepped in a relationship with Christ and I had this mentor, Steve Toth, who you were talking about Steve Toth, right. for me for a year. Steve Toth, basically, he, he mentored me in, in the biblical principles of, of manhood. So I inventoried my life and said, this is what my character looks like now, but this is what the Bible says my character should look like. And if I make these changes and tweaks in my life, I'm going to land in a, in a good, pretty good spot because this is the way I was supposed to intended, I was intended to live life. And so I came to this realization that I didn't have to let my past define my future. I can move forward into a healthier life and to, in a, in a more purposeful life. And, and through the decision of making those changes, that's where I found the restoration in my, in my in PTSD, anxiety, depression, and my own brokenness in my own life and my marriage. That's where I found the, how to calibrate, how to be married, like we talked about earlier, like how to be married for the first time. I didn't know how me and Kathy went to marriage. I'm knowing how. That's where I learned how to be married, what it looked like. What, uh, I found hope again. And then I've ultimately found what I had sought my whole, my whole life. And that was, that was purpose. You know, if, if we knew then what we know now, that's one of the sayings that we say a lot. But for somebody that might be going through similar situations, they just ain't quite grasped and that's what's going on yet. What could you say to that, that guy? Yeah, I mean, um, that's what, that's why we need to be surrounded by people. Always, always surround yourself by people who are where you want to be in life, and uh, and 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 then put value on that advice to give you. A lot of times, people, when you're in a bad situation and you you reach out to people for advice, they always tell you things you don't want to hear. You want to be where they are, but you don't want to hear what they're having to say. Right. And uh, you're not gonna, you're not gonna end up where they are if you're not gonna listen to that advice. And, uh, you know, especially when you're young, right? Like you young kids, like 18, 19 years old, like, oh, I want to do that one day. And, okay, okay, here's the path to do that. And, well, I don't want to do all that. Well, it's the same thing with uh, having a healthy life or having a healthy marriage. You know, if you, if you want to have a healthy marriage, then, then find a couple that's been married, you know, 10, 15 years longer than you and, and learn about their struggles and their trials and how they navigated them and the things they've made. made. If you're having panic and anxiety attacks, you know, maybe talk to a counselor a psychologist, but also maybe talk to someone that has had panic attacks and anxiety before. And uh, that's why I think peer-to-peer -peer programs like Mighty Oaks are so important. All of our instructors are people who have been through our program, graduated our program. They've been to combat. They came home. They fell on their face, but they got back up again. And they may not have it all figured out, but they're heading in the right direction. And they're wanting to pay it forward and take others along with them. I think there's so much value 
and uh, learning those life lessons and wisdom from other people who have been there before you. That's what that's what I do now, and I try to do that same thing for others uh, behind that that are you know trailing me. Chad, do you mind if I ask a question here? Because we did you mentioned Steve Toth, and I wanted to know how that relationship developed. Did he seek you out? Did you seek him out? Did there's something that he said, "Hey, this is a guy that needs help." Um, Steve is one of our representatives here in Texas, and we've heard nothing but good things about him. But you know, when when I started to read the book about your story, in fact, I contacted Steve. I said, "Are you this guy that that worked with Chad?" And he's, "That's me." Okay. And then I looked at his profile. Yeah, it says Mighty Oaks. But just tell us a little bit more about that. And uh, I mean, what all happened there? That to me, that was you had that mentor. And I've talked with many people, you know, sometimes they say, well, let's go to counseling, but really a mentor is much better than counseling in many instances. So just tell me a little bit more about that whole relationship, what it did for you. Did your wife go through a mentor as well? Because I know that, you know, it wasn't just you, as you said, that needed to have this mentoring, but uh, you are the leader of the family and everything, but just give us a little bit more flavor to that. Yeah. So if I could take you back to um, you know, being in that closet, so when Kathy... You know, I'm sitting. I'm sitting there one day, and I'm in that closet, one pistol, pistol. I'm trying to build up the courage to, to pull the trigger, and and I heard a knock on my door, actually bang on my door, and I wasn't going to answer it, but then when I heard Kathy announce her voice, um, I actually hid that pistol. I don't know why I hid it. She would have never came in my closet. It was my apartment. I'm probably ashamed, but I actually hid it. I went and answered the door, and we got this argument. And during an argument, she asked me a question that you know radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps. She saw me become a recon Marine and all these training and schools and deployments, all the things I did and the discipline it took to do those things, training for these MMA fights and cutting weight. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty disciplined guy. So she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, and that question for me just, you know, cut me to the core. It was, it was, she was absolutely right. I've been successful in professional things, but it came the most important thing, being a husband, being a father, being that, the young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand and said he wanted to do something important in his life. I quit all those things, including my own will to live. And I knew in that moment, like, I'm a pretty radical decision maker. I'm like all in or all out. And I knew in that moment that I had to make a 180-degree turn in my life and a decision or, uh, you know, I was going to lose everything, including my, my life, because I knew at that point I did not want to live anymore. And so uh, I, I knew, I, one, I couldn't do it by myself. And two, I couldn't do it with the people I surrounded myself by. Because I had, you know, being a fighter and being like highly ranked and not having an MMA school, like I was able to kind of control my environment. And so anyone that tried to put accountability in my life, I kind of pushed them out of my life. So I had people around me that told me everything I wanted to hear and not what I needed to hear. And so I knew I needed someone outside of my circle to step into my life. And I asked my wife, Kathy, who had been going to this church in our community, uh, Woods Edge in, in, in Woodlands, Texas. She, I asked her if there was someone at this church, a man at this church she was going to, that could help hold me accountable to this decision to, to uh, you know, change my life. And uh, she met, introduced me to Steve Toth. I met him at, I met Steve. Steve was just on call at the church at the time. In fact, he was meeting me to connect me to someone else. But when I met him, he had the perfect gifts like to help me. Uh, he wasn't an MMA fighter or, or a military guy, but he has ADD, like really bad. So that was the gift. And the reason, the reason I say it's a gift because – like and Steve, when I say he has ADD really bad, like literally, if you go eat lunch with Steve, he doesn't walk to his car; he runs because like walking's wasting his time. He's like no at all. So the reason this was a gift for me is because I was so manipulative, and in fact, I probably intended to manipulate him. I'd written like a five paragraph order, a hot plan of how I was going to fix my life, 
And I remember sitting down with him at Starbucks and I slid it over to him, like really smug, like, hey, check this out, like show it to my wife so you can like tell her I'm actually trying here. And he didn't even read it. He like slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. And I said, I'll follow And I'm like, I was like very offended. I was ticked up because I had like an attitude. And, uh, and I was trying to control the situation because I'm so manipulative. And, uh, and I remember thinking like, who's this guy? Like, I, I like taking my time to meet with him, and he's like, which is my attitude. Of, and, uh, and he's not even going to read this and put together and not even realizing that he's giving me his time. And, uh, and uh, you know, in, in that moment, he's, he tapped. I remember he tapped on that paper, my, my plan. He said, this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to let you waste time. And at that time in my life, I tried everything. I tried the pills. I've been through counseling and the programs and I tried the MMA and jiu-jitsu and making money and being and having a notoriety, all those things. And some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad, but none of those things changed my situation. So I knew I tried everything uh, and it was time to try something different. In fact, at Mighty Oaks Foundation, we have been saying, uh, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? And, uh, and what I was doing wasn't working. It was time for me to try something different. And I just figured I'd just trust this guy and what did I have to lose? And gave God a chance and surrendered my life to Christ, and and uh, and that that decision radically changed my life. Wow! And Chad, I want to ask one further question along this time here, along these lines, because you know, with the issue that that you were going through, you you and your wife had very severe um, difficulties, challenges you had to overcome. And I know it took you some time. It took you a lot of patience, a lot of hard work, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of rebuilding trust, and everything else. And I know at this point you would say it was worth it all. At that point, you probably would have said, you know what? I'm not really sure completely whether it's worth it all. The other thing is that, you know, maybe my kids, like you were saying, will be better off without me. Um, there's a lot of people that think that, you know, kids are resilient. You know, when families break down, kids are resilient. When when parents are happy because they have a divorce, the kids will be happy. But when you talk to your kids about just doing that, their response wasn't exactly what you anticipated, was it? No, I mean, I, I hear, you hear that same story all the time. Everyone, every time somebody's struggling with divorce, you talk to them, you, you hear the same justified excuse as well. You're not going to hear the fighting anymore. They get, they, you know, it's not going to be the chaos anymore. The two Christmases, like all the way. They, but the truth is, you know, kid, children, and I could say from my own experience of being divorced, and my children are deeply wounded by the separation of a, of a mother and father. And there's no, if there's any way to keep the marriage together, then you must, because there's no healthier environment for children. Even even in a home where there's bickering and fighting, there's no better environment than being an environment where there's a, you know, I'm not talking about violent, violent right. things. I mean, safety's, safety's obviously important. I'm talking about like fighting and stuff like that and people not getting along or not being happy. I don't know why everybody feels they're entitled to be happy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, you know, there's no better environment for a child than being being at home with their their mother and father. And uh, a lot of the problems we see in this country, and it's one of the things that I mean, the issue going on right now. Everybody's scared to say it. Like, everybody's scared because of the, the Black Lives Matters uh, movement. They're terrified to say that we have a problem in our inner cities with in fatherless homes. And that's yeah. you know, if we want to really address what's going on in inner cities and in the, these these black communities, it's you know, it starts in the home. It doesn't start with the president. It doesn't start with the, the governor and mayor or the leaders in the cities who are always going to fail us. It, start, it starts in the home, with the parents in the home. And uh, that's how we can really fix these communities. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I love black people. I don't like the Black Lives Matter organization. 
uh, what I love, what I love most is uh, his families are intact and see healthy children, adults, and, and then parent healthy children as well. No so we talk about. You know, we know that government policy is not the answer to fixing things, but could you maybe comment on how s sometimes the government policy actually makes things worse? So, for example, like when you talk about the issue of, you know, the children want to be raised in an intact family. In Texas, you know, we have the issue of unilateral, no-fault divorce, divorce for any reason, for no reason. Somebody's not happy. Somebody met somebody new. Somebody wants to find themselves and the state, without exception, 100% of the time, will side with the person who wants out of the marriage, without yeah. exception. And they think, well, it's just between adults. But you're talking about a generational curse, in a sense, that the, that the decisions of the parents is affecting the children, and I would go so far as to say the grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And the state is, is allowing policies to be in place that are destructive we're not going to ask the state to help us and to solve these uh, the core issues, but please quit destroying our families. Can you talk anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one, it, you know, the the contractual, you uh, know, and I I don't think marriage is a contract, by the way. It's a covenant between a man and a woman. And, and go go explain a little bit more of that as as you're yeah. done here, because that's I want to hear that too. But but the but there is a contractual legal. You know, binding document, and Melissa's an attorney and probably knows more about this than me. But that that uh, it I don't think that you know someone should be able to just get out of that 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 contract like we just you know on a whim. Uh, I I like to see in states where uh you know where they have to have like a six month cool off period or some kind of some kind of period to where they actually have to think it through, and it should not be an easy process. And and uh you know if someone wants out wants out of the marriage, they should not be entitled to all the things that they would. They should not have the entitled privileges of getting out of a marriage. For example, if you know, if 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 I'm a if I'm a husband and my wife after 20 years decides she just wants to leave me, then should she get half of my retirement because she's the one deciding to to leave me uh, without grounds for that divorce? Should she get the kids? You know, I, I'm not the one that wants to divorce. Should she get the kids? Like those kind of things should be should be considered. It should not be made so easy uh, because when things are easy, people do them uh, more quickly. Talk a little bit more about the covenant aspect of it, though, too, that you mentioned, because I think that's a very important part when we talk about, for example, a couple of states that do have covenant marriage versus uh, right now the states think that if you get married, they get to control your marriage and all the rules and everything like that. But two people that come together and they say, listen, we are coming together in a faith-based relationship. We are we are getting married because, you know, we believe that this is God's purpose for our lives. I, I have some issues with the fact that the state can go into an institution like that that is a sacrament of the church in some instances, or it's an ordinance of the church. And the state just kind of tramples over the religion. Uh, they, they intrude upon the religious domain in a sense. And um, But oh, I think when you're talking about covenant marriage, that's kind of what you're referring to a little bit if, if I'm following your drift. Is that correct? Yeah, well, covenant marriage to me is it's this is, says will we go beyond a legal contract and this is a covenant marriage is a is a is a binding agreement between a man and woman and god um now the real problem comes comes where you know the more godless our nation becomes and the less uh, people value uh, god in our country the more problems we see everywhere across the spectrum um you know it, a lot of people talk you know listening that wouldn't agree with you or i on 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 faith or relationship with God would say that this conversation is imposing God on 
their marriage and they talk about church, separation of church and state. Well, separation of church and state was never intended to, uh, to protect the state from church or protect the people from church. It was meant to protect the church from the government and protect the people from the government to, to jump, to, and protect the people from the government getting involved in these, in these matters. And so these are matters uh, for the government. I don't think the government should be involved in these types of things and, and have a say in our, in our marriages. I know that's probably not a popular thing. Um, you're asking uh, why we are or where we are in our country on marriage or so many so many areas. Uh, this is Absolutely, Chad. I thank you so much for coming tonight. I loved hearing your story. A lot of that I, I definitely related to. Could you tell everybody where they can keep up with you with uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation and whatever you're going through? Yeah, I mean, I'll. I'll you know, if you get on any of social media handles to follow me, just if you type in my name, Chad Roby Show, uh, common spelling. I'm just kidding. Sure you guys, you guys <laughs> so, yeah, Chad Roby Show, you can find me on all the social media, uh, almost Facebook, Instagram. I'm probably on Instagram the most. But um, but Mighty Oaks Foundation, uh, if you go to mightyoaksprograms.org, any veterans listening, any active duty service members, any uh, spouses of, of those or first responders, all the programs are free. We'd love to serve you. Uh, you don't have to struggle through the things that we talked about today on your own. And there is a solution. Uh, love for you to give us a chance to serve you. And again, everything's free. Just go on the website and uh, sign up. And one of our team members get, get to you right away. We have 30 camps a year, so lots of date options. And then uh, while I say it's free to the veterans, it's not free to us. We have to pay for it. We pay for it by a grateful nation. So if you're interested in supporting that cause, you go to Mighty Oaks Programs that are to make donations. Uh, anybody interested in reading any of my books that we talked about today, Marriage Advance and Unfair Advantage is my newest book, which uh, is endorsed by the president, by the way. Um, uh, in, 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 uh, it's out right now on Amazon or on our website at Mighty Oaks and Unfair Advantage. Uh, but in October, we're re-releasing it with a study, a men's study uh, in it. So, uh, that's so Chad, you, you just mentioned the president. Are you working at all with the president? Does he have you tasked to help because i mean the veterans issues that we talked about the ptsd and the suicide issues this is a crisis and we as citizens we as americans have an obligation to help those who've been serving our country has the president talked with you at all have you do you have any do you talk with him at all about what can be done to help in some of these these ways yeah i, I am uh so i'm assigned as the chairman of the fbbsa faith-based veteran service alliance which is a white house initiative um which is bringing uh helping implement uh, bringing advocacy and implementation to all the policies the president's done. Uh, I am also a, a national board member for the campaign. So I'm speaking on veterans policy for the campaign. So I was just with the president and, uh, and the vice president and Karen Pence as well. I was with, with them, about 30 cabinet members and about 20 of us were guests. We were at the president at the White House when he rolled out the prevents, which is the president's roadmap to empower veterans and end the national tragedy of veteran suicide. Um, this president has done just an amazing job. I can speak firsthand, not from a campaign. I am on the campaign, but I'll tell you, I'm, the only reason I'm on the campaign is not because I'm cheerleading any candidate. I'm on the campaign because this man actually did not, he took things that he said in the campaign and he put it in action. He put policy in place that is saving veterans' lives. I mean, of all the branches of, of the government, he's reduced the he's reduced the budgets in every branch of the government except for two areas, the Department of Defense and the VA. He's raised the budgets in those to equip our military, make them combat ready, and then the VA to make to be able to care for our warriors when they come home. In 2016, he was a candidate at a very rare opportunity, and I asked, I was able to ask him a question 
uh, I was one of six veterans I got to talk to him personally and asked him if he would reverse President Obama's decision. In 2009, President Obama made a decision to defund faith and community programs for the VA and the veterans, which took a suicide rate from 16 to 22 in only four years. Yep. Uh, so I knew faith programs are important because I do them. And I asked candidate Trump, if he became president of the United States, would he turn that around? Would he sign an executive order to reverse that? He said yes. And, uh, and two years later, he did. Uh, he kept his word. He signed an executive order on faith programs back in the VA. I'm working on helping implement that now. And, uh, and him really had the prevents policy and leaving every stone, uh, no stone unturned, every option, cut all the government red tape and the bureaucracy and bringing a solution to our warriors and faith programs, community programs, uh, just in, in engaging every American to do that. So yeah, the answer to your question is yes, uh, very much so. Uh, I think it's critical to the veteran community that, you know, the president stay in office. Wow. Yeah. I, I've got to tell you something. Um, this is just me speaking right now, okay? But um, listening to you here, there were times that I not only had goosebumps, but practically tears in my eyes about some of the things that you're talking about. These are real life issues. And to hear your story, even though I've read your book, I mean, you went into much more detail. And it was almost as if I could feel the stuff that you were going through. And I think you communicated that so well. Um, Thanks, Jeff. It's it's just not it's just not a theory or words or a policy, but you're talking about lives, and you're talking about children's lives and grandchildren's lives, and um, I I don't know maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but I would love, you know, this is Eric will make this decision and and, and you as well, but love to have you and your wife on here sometime because I think that, yeah. I think that the the issue that you, you mentioned something as well, you mentioned that spouses can come to the programs. And I think sometimes we forget about that the military, the veteran, the service person has a spouse that also has needs. And uh, I think it'd be very interesting. It's the hardest job in the military, being a military yeah. spouse. I mean, you know, I'm like, a lot of people pat me in the back, like, oh, you did eight deployments to Afghanistan. I'm like, yeah, I had fun. My wife was like back home, being a mom, dad, husband, wife, all those things while I was yeah. gone. I was yeah. out there doing something I absolutely love, having having it, I mean, it was hard. Obviously I struggled when I came back, but I was having the time of my life. I would never trade that for anything. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, I mean, she was home back on pulling her hair out. And I know that's a lot of spouses, uh, you know, they, they allow us to do what we do when we, when we deploy the spouses are an amazing part of military and America's, uh, security. Well, yeah. spouses need programs such as yours because without programs like yours, they end up using the family courts as a resource, and that is a dead end. It's a, it's a death sentence for marriages. Is what yeah. yeah, that's one of the reasons we initiated it. Uh, we just knew that we had to treat, we had to be able to offer pro. We couldn't offer for what we had to offer for the whole family because we believe in uh, you know the, our core principles of, of Mighty Oaks is to to save veterans' lives, to restore their families and to change their legacies for, for forever. So one, prevent veteran suicide, keep their marriages intact, intact and make sure they uh, they find a home in eternity and, uh, and the right home in eternity. So those three things are the most important to us. And we knew we had to do service spouses as well. And we say we're service spouses. We have a women's program and a men's program. If we have a male spouse, they go in the men's program. We have a female spouse. They go on with the female veterans to the female's program because our programs, we don't care what they do for a living if they're a, a a housewife or a JAG officer or, or female Navy SEAL or whatever. It doesn't matter. Your job's, your job's not your identity in the programs we run. So uh, they all go together as, based on gender. Yeah. Two, only two 
We don't have two jobs. <laughs> That's right. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> we don't have two programs. <laughs> well, I just want to say for myself, it is an honor to have you here. I'm so thankful. Thank you for making time for us. I mean, who are we that we get to talk with somebody? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate your time, and, and and thank you guys for what you're doing. You know, to talk about these issues and have a show about it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Thank you. Hey, everybody, please go check out the Mighty Oaks Foundation and Chad. Thank you again, my man. You bet. God bless, guys. God bless you too. Thank you for joining us tonight. We are fighting for the rights of parents worldwide. If you want to help support our podcast and for us to continue this mission, please join us at patreon.com slash dadtalktoday. You will find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, CloudHub, Parlor, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, the podcast app, Google, Apple Podcasts. We're a little bit of everywhere. And guys, every time you like and subscribe, you help us continue this mission. Thank you, and we will see you next time.